Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. is Jeff Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, Caroline Lennon will join me to talk about her move from Air to Salesforce and the company's brand new office block in Dublin. Plus, should we be more concerned about the prospect of Gardaí using facial recognition in body-worn cameras? As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Uh, On Thursday of this week, Salesforce Ireland opened a brand new office down on the Silicon Docks in Dublin. It is a stunning building. It is a huge HQ for the company. And I got to catch up with the country lead, Caroline Lennon. Now, you may know Caroline from her days at Air. She was there for a long period of time and was the face and the voice of the brand as it went through different projects, whether that was new owners, the rollout of 5G, the national broadband plan, she was front and centre. However, she left the company around a year ago and started working for Salesforce around 10 months ago. So earlier this week, I got to catch up with her and I started by asking her how she's finding that move. Yeah, so I've been here just over 10 months, still counting in months. Uh, I think, yeah, so it's it's been a big transition, but I suppose... Um, the opportunity to join Salesforce like was too compelling an option, I think, to ignore market leader in its field, very purpose led, you know. And when you look at the values, particularly around customer equality and trust, I just really they really sort of resonated with me. So um, the opportunity to work for a company like that and to try and be a leader in a different kind of model was very compelling and I'm delighted to getting on really well, really enjoying it and delighted that uh, I took the opportunity. I think also as well, um, impressed by Salesforce's commitment to Ireland. I think, you know, a, a lot of people don't know, but have been investing consistently in Ireland for over two decades. I launched here in back in 2000 mm-hmm. and, you know, the first office um, to be opened outside the US, you know, which again, is, it was incredible, you know. So I think it really shows that, you know, that uh, commitment to Dublin and Ireland as a strategic location or hope for Salesforce. So, you know, very, you know, very attractive and great people here, Mm. like great people here, super focused on the customer and delivering for the customer, but also equally, which I absolutely love. And and they're amazing energy around it, uh, invest in their community. Yeah. The amount of volunteering, the volunteering opportunities, the volunteering hours, the philanthropy, you know, the equality agendas, like amazing, amazing people. So, you know, I've, it's been, yeah, it's been a really nice 10 months, tough uh, getting to know a new industry and getting to know all these new people. I kind of knew my way around the neck, around there by the time I left, but, uh, but they're really enjoying it and going really well so far. Well, that's great to hear. We did a special program with Salesforce uh, when the company celebrated its 20th anniversary in Ireland. And we looked back at the way Ireland was 20 years ago when Salesforce decided to move to here and the fact that it was the first office outside of the US and the importance of the Ireland office in the global Salesforce operation. Because sometimes we're looked upon as that small little sister over to the side. But it does seem that Ireland does play a key role in the overall Salesforce operation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you think about that, like the first um, office outside the US, you know, the largest uh, office hub in EMEA. So, you know, sort of a centre of excellence. We have we have 28 nationalities 
you know, based out of the Ireland office. And, you know, we have, you know, finance teams, technology teams, sales teams, like the whole breadth of, I suppose, the different parts of the Salesforce organization are all to be found, you know, in Salesforce Ireland, in, in, in Salesforce Tower Dublin. So I think, you know, a hugely important part of the overall Salesforce kind of infrastructure. And as I said, key hope for EMEA and a key hope for Salesforce. Mm -hmm. And obviously you joined at a really interesting time where there was a lot of, uh, I suppose, readjustment post-COVID. So whether that was in terms of staffing, in terms of remote working, the office space. But this week we're chatting because you're continuing to grow and you've opened the doors of a new office space. So talk to me a little bit about, just from a personal point of view rather than a business point of view to begin with, coming in at that time where there was a lot of transitions going on. Yeah, so I suppose, uh, so we'll talk about the office in a second, but yeah, so so when I when I first started, uh, so we were in, you know, three offices, you know, based in three different parts of Dublin. I was trying to get to know everyone. I was like doing a day here, a day there. I didn't know whether I was coming or going a lot of the time and just trying to get my, you know, to meet people and kind of interact. And, you know, we had people in the office, we had people working hybrid, whatever. But I suppose that Salesforce was always hybrid organization. Mm-hmm. You know, and I and I think you know that was that was in our DNA. You know, b- before COVID, I think, and I think we also accepted that. You know, the new world is hybrid and it is connected. And I suppose, but the good thing about our current building is it was developed with the future in mi- in mind. So it was it wasn't your it wasn't thought about like your standard office. It was thought about as how do we build a place where people can collaborate you know how do we think about sustainability and how do we think about employees wellness now this is all pre-covid so people mm-hmm. thinking really far ahead and thinking future of, of the office so to be and like for example we have 70 percent more collaboration space in this office than we ever had before so for us it is about you know creating spaces for employees to get in front of customers to collaborate more or maybe to have a quiet time we've got libraries and quiet zones and wellness centers so that was an amazing catalyst actually for people to come back into the office and I suppose we we don't have rules but what we do is we empower our managers to agree with their teams you know what's you know how where they should work and when they should work but I think in you know this was designed as a place where we thought we could grow productivity because by creating that dynamic and those different spaces and that you know that idea around collaboration that it would encourage people to come in. And that's what we found. So for me, it's been amazing to go from the three offices into one office with this, you know, this different design with the collaboration space. We've got a 150 person auditorium downstairs. We had a customer innovation day there a week or so ago to be able to host that in our own building rather than have to use a hotel. Then we were able to, you know, entertain customers for lunch up on our HANA floor. And just, and we're delighted so far, like the energy, you'll have to come in and see us, but the energy and the kind of excitement around the building, it really feels like it's living up to its design, you know, its design thinking. I wish I could take credit for that. That was all done before my time. I'm just the lucky beneficiary of this, you know, extraordinary building that people seem to really want to come into, which is fantastic. Yeah, I, I'm dying to go down and have a snoop around. And I think that's so interesting that these conversations were going on before COVID because we've seen so many leaders come out and make big, bold statements about we're never going to be in the office again or everyone has to come back now. 
And one thing that I've learned is that you can't really have a fast and hard rule because every person is different, every role is different, every situation is different. So do you think that flexible mindset, while always watching the bottom line and the productivity and the output, that's the future of work rather than this or that? Absolutely, Jess, absolutely. I think you you have to look at, you know, the role, the organization, you know, what's going on, the space. So I think it is about that flexibility. Like we, for example, we want our sales customers, our sales staff to be with their customers, Mm -hmm. you know, so we want them out and about, you know, and talking to their customers and supporting their customers in their digital transformation. You know, we have finance people here who might want a quiet time, but they might want to do their quiet time here, depending on how noisy their house is, or they might want to do it at home. But I think for me, it's about trusting your leaders and your managers and your people and people agreeing, you know, what's going to work. And as you say, of course, we have to be productive. We have to deliver. We have to deliver for our customers. We have to deliver for Salesforce. But I think absolutely flexibility is the model. There is no black and white. We're kind of, we're living in the gray and we need to embrace that and, you know, and, and make the right decisions, you know, based on, on teams. Um, I alluded to it a second ago, but obviously it's been a turbulent time. We've seen job cuts take place in the tech sector. Um, I saw you were speaking at the Connected Remodel uh, launch event with the Business Post recently and you said that we can't fully draw a line under that turbulent period just yet. Do you think that we're still working our way through it? Well, I think if you look at 2023 for all businesses, not just the tech sector, like there's still quite a, a, a degree of uncertainty out there. Like there still are economic headwinds. Okay, inflation's come down, but it's still there. And, you know, there's still a lot of sort of unpredictability out there. So I think nobody can say that everything's kind of settled down now and it's back to business as usual, no matter what industry uh, you're in. However, what I would say for us and, you know, because I'm out there talking to, to business leaders and we're here, like every CEO I talk to, digital transformation is at the top of their agenda. How can I drive growth, get more efficient, you know, through uh, my digital transformation? And a lot of talk recently in particular about, data, making great use of my data, um, using AI, and how can I automate tasks that make sense to automate? So that's coming through. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's our absolute bed and butter. We're at the forefront of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm really optimistic that we have we have great products. We have really good customers. I mean, if, if you take an example of some of the customers that we have here, like we've got the Kerry Group. Kerry Group is a, a customer of, of Salesforce. And they're, they've basically really enhanced um, the experience for their customers and their employees by using one of our platforms to build a personalized self-service um, um, a platform, a portal across their entire customer experience, you know, and that's on the way on their digital their journey. We've got CPL, you know, in terms of talent and, and hiring. So they've now got a unique, again, using Salesforce platforms and a unique view of their customers and their clients. And they've told us that's delivered a million euros worth of value. And some of the processes are more productive now by 75%. So do I think everything's going to calm down? No. But do I think we have the right products and services for customers, you know, who are all grappling with that digital transformation? I think, I think yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's a, as I said, it's great to be in a market leader like Salesforce that is right at the forefront. Um, you know, if I look, I, I can't think of a company that's more mission critical in today's environment than ours. Every business leader, digital transformation, top of their agenda, and we're the trusted digital advisor. And that's something that I think I've tried to reinforce on the show over the last number of months. The companies that have had to make restructurings or let people go, 
you're not stopping the innovation. You're continuing to grow. These are sort of corrections and obviously it's unfortunate and it's never pleasant to see people losing their jobs. But the innovation is continuing because there's still work to be done. Absolutely. I mean, we, we still have, you know, over 2,800 people in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're continually integrating. Like innovation is one of Salesforce's core values. You know, they've been innovating for the last, you know, 22 years and continue to do that on the back of, listening to our customers and trying to help our customers deliver ahead of their all changing customer needs, you know, to try and stay ahead of that. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's still investment, there's still innovation, there's still investment in beautiful buildings like this one, you know, yes. trying to do different things around collaboration and innovation. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and corrections have to take place. I mean, I think, you know, it's much better to correct and make sure that you have a, you know, you have a great business for the future than to ignore what needs to be done. But as you said, innovation and investment continue all the time. One thing that's come up throughout the conversation when we've been talking now is the importance of that connection, the human connection. So whether it is with your staff, with your teams or with your customers, because for a while there, a few years ago, it felt like we were going into the automated customer service world and that was the height of it. Everything was just going to be press six for whatever. Am I right in saying that uh, at Salesforce, you're bringing back that element of humanity and sort of celebrating the importance of that human connection? Yeah, I think it's, you know, as I said, it's it's a purpose and values led company. And I think it was always about, you know, pulling people together and to innovate and to be creative and, you know, to connect with the customers and, you know, always encourage people to go out there and have those face to face connections. So. I think it is it is that, you know, optimization of that, you know, what's good to do together, what's good to do, what's to do together with a customer, with an employee, with a team member, and what is maybe a value, a low value add task that could easily be automated and allow people's time then to, to work on, you know, the new innovation, the, you know, the creative moment or whatever. So it's, you know, I think that's been at, you know, Salesforce's kind of DNA since the start. And I think that's really important. And it's why, like, despite turbulent times while you know we still believe in our 111 model you know one percent of um of profit one percent of product and one percent of time go back into our local communities we didn't we never stepped away from that you know no matter what's happening you know there's volunteering events we had i i brought my love of special olympics to salesforce we had you know a load of people out you know for their uh, shaking buckets for their collection day on the 21st you know all those events going on you know because and that is about that human connection you know, face to face, person to person. I, I think that's really important. And, you know, it's one of the things I really like about Salesforce. Well, look, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I really do appreciate your time and we will definitely be down for a snoop around your new dig soon. Caroline, thank you so much. Thanks, Jess. That was country lead at Salesforce, Caroline Lennon. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we'll be asking if we should be more concerned at the prospect of Gardy using facial recognition within body camps. Stay tuned. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, before the break, we were chatting to Caroline Lennon about the new Salesforce office, which just officially opened in Dublin earlier this week, Salesforce Tower on the Silicon Docks in Dublin. And I'm now in another beautiful tech HQ in Leopardstown in Dublin. Uh, I'm at the MasterCard office in Leopardstown. This is an important part of the wider MasterCard operation, as we're going to hear. Uh, But I've been chatting to a number of the executives from the company over the last few hours 
about the innovation that's going on in the wider financial sector, but then obviously enough here at MasterCard too. And I've just walked out from having a chat that I'm going to bring you now with Ken Moore, who is the Chief Innovation Officer at MasterCard. I think he may well have the best gig at the company, uh, but here's my conversation with him where we talk about payments in the metaverse, innovation, safety and fraud. And I started by asking him to tell me a little bit about what his day to day function within the company looks like. I think sometimes maybe to start, I think the name MasterCard is actually somewhat misleading um, because the word card appears. And, and, and that was very much been a part of our past and something we're immensely proud of and will continue to be a part of our future. But it only it, it's, it's somewhat limiting if you were to look at our company today and just think cards. We have a range of businesses that span identity, data, services, cyber, and we indeed we have payment rails that go way beyond cards uh, into ACH, fast ACH, blockchain, open banking, data networks. So I think when you think about my role, um, that's a that's a lot of things to play with, right? And what am I at my heart? I'm a futurist, uh, grounded in kind of technology and. Uh, changes in end customer, end consumer behavior. And I use those lenses to kind of predict where I think both the world of commerce and the world of payments is going. And in predicting that, I also then have to build the products and services that are going to help both MasterCard and perhaps more importantly, our partners win in the future, given where we think the world is going. So that's a big part of my role. There's a few other parts, Jess, but that's Mm -hmm. probably the part that uh, every day gets me out of bed with a bounce on my step. Yeah, which is awesome. Uh, Being a futurist and into technology and seeing the potential in the technology is amazing. But how much does the end user, the end consumer play on your mind in terms of we could do this amazing thing, but it's useless if people won't use it or if they don't understand it? Is that a seesaw that you sort of try and balance in your head or do you leave that to somebody else? No, no, we completely we completely look at that. I mean, it's actually so central because the economics of our business are actually built on usage, not not sale. So if we put stuff out into the world and it isn't used, we don't we don't get paid. So the, the end consumer is is central to everything we think about. We have a customer insights group underneath my teams that that looks at both obvious behavioral changes that we can see today, but also changes that we could anticipate, things that consumers mightn't be able to articulate to us today, but things that we expect to happen out over the next five or six years. And those are kind of foresights, if you like, um, for where we think consumer behaviors will go. Also, the way we build products and services are ultimately, because we're B to B to C, or B to B to small B, right? Um, So we never directly interface with the consumer, but the brands that we do provide technology to, mostly are consumer facing, are facing off into small and medium-sized enterprises. Those brands rely on us to anticipate what consumers are gonna want so that they can construct the experiences that are gonna scale. So we put huge amounts of effort into understanding through research, focus groups, CX and design teams, a customer experience and design teams into the problems that we're solving for consumers, how broad those problems are, what consumers do before they use our solutions, what they do after our solutions, how they feel when they're using our solutions. And we put all of that into the kind of, you know, the recipe or the the baking tray for the products and services that we create. And then even as we bring them to market, every step along the way, we are constantly testing, iterating, right from Dublin here with consumers right around the world. 
Yeah, and, and it's class that's happening here in Dublin. And we heard earlier in the show that this is an important cog in the whole MasterCard uh, machine, which is brilliant. The To continue with the seesaw analogy, with innovation comes opportunity, but also comes threat. Yeah. And we've seen a huge amount of threats creep out of the cracks from all corners of the internet and day-to-day life when it comes to finance and um, financial information. Do you have to try and preempt what the bad guys are going to do? Or do you go, oh, sugar, they caught on to us. Now we have to try and get ahead again. Or what way does that work? Yeah, that's a great question because people are really excited by the new opportunities that technology creates for them tomorrow, right? Whether that's in their professional or their personal lives. But they're also increasingly aware, I mean, how many of us, uh, who hasn't gotten a some sort of an attempted cyber at- a- a- attack on our phone or an SMS that's misleading? Um, I mean, according to my SMS messages on my phone, I have accounts with a whole bunch of people that I never knew I had accounts with at all. So I think we're increasingly aware of the kind of multi-factored threats that are out there. So. The answer to your question is we tend to be very principled in what we do. We try to look a little bit deeper into technologies rather because we're very aware that our brand stands for certain things in the world. Safety, security, trust, regulatory adherence, consumer in control. And therefore, even though we lean into these technologies, we find them just as intoxicating and interesting as the next company does. We're very aware that we have to marry the technology with our brand promise, the safety, security, trust, consumer and control. And therefore, we take a little bit of time to kind of make sure that as we deploy these technologies, we do it in the right way. And and you can see that from us in everything that we've done, our approach to cryptocurrencies, um, our approach to CBDCs, our approach to AI, our approach to blockchain, our approach to tokenization, mm-hmm. our approach to open banking. There's always a set of principles which we publish which we adhere to, and we think that's the right way to marry it. Now, on the other side of it, we're also increasingly aware that we play a role within the ecosystem more broadly. And and in the one hand, we're creating these new experiences, but on the other hand, we're also creating a set of services and cyber tools that protect our partners from some of the the threats and the attacks that we know that are out there. So things like CypherTrace, um, you know, many of the acquisitions that we've made over the last while have all been bolstering, um, largely using AI, the, the kind of way that we can protect customer, our customers, the, the middle bees, the banks, the fintechs, the governments, the telcos, um, and the end consumer from some of these threat, uh, some of these threats. So it's one hand excited about the opportunity, principled approach take a little bit of time to get it right so that we protect from the downsides and also recognize that there's opportunities for us to help our customers protect themselves from the downsides as well. Mm. A lot of people are still getting to grips with the notion of 2FA, so the two-factor authentication Mm -hmm. or multi-factor authentication. Is there innovation in this space around making the verification and the authentication a bit less painful for the consumer? Because I know it's not the most, you know, taxing thing in the world but every day someone in the news talk office tuts out loud because they have to wait for an authentication, uh, authentication code. And it's those little sort of grooves in your day that can irritate the customer. Yeah. Are, are there other ways that we can you know, get around those types of things or is that just uh, notional thinking? It, it's always a balance, right? Because um, it's a balance between wanting a frictionless experience on the one hand, 
but also wanting to know that what we're doing is safe and secure on the other hand. And it's about striking the right balance, which tends to represent itself as friction, whether that's a second factor authentication or the need to put in a password. Of course, there are other technologies that allow us to do it, and we try to deploy the most useful technologies in the appropriate scenario, cognizant of the regulations that exist in individual markets. Some examples of other technologies that we use, passive biometrics. So you're, you're familiar with active biometrics, your iris, your retinal scan, your fingerprint. You have to consciously do something. Passive biometrics are how you hold your phone, how quickly you type a password in. We're constantly using them in the, bas in the, ba in the background to say, is this really Jess? Is that, the, is that how quickly she types that sentence? Does she, do, does she swipe in that particular pattern on her phone? Those are passive biometrics. You're not aware of them, mm -hmm. but they're working to provide safety and security for you behind the scenes. Similar to artificial intelligence, the decision intelligence example we showed downstairs, that's working in the background. Consumers don't know. Mm -hmm but yet we're pulling information, providing it to our banking partners to help them make a more effective decision on whether to allow a particular payment transaction or not. In the future, as you start to look to UWB, so N NFC today, you've probably got to be, I know this doesn't translate well, very close to the actual sensor to make a contactless payment. UWB extends that up to 200 meters, right? So you could be in an arena a, uh, the Aviva Stadium, a sports arena. You could be in a, in a restaurant and without ever having to approach the merchant point of sale, you could be able to do a contactless payment. As we start to build experiences like that that do benefit consumers and some people will want to do them, we have to figure out the right level of friction mm -hmm. to put into that so that consumers are safe, but just as importantly, feel safe. Because some people will feel oh my God, my card number is traveling 200 meters across the room here, mm -hmm. right? Which isn't true, but, but that's, that's how we kind of build these things. It's looking at the right level of friction. And even when friction is obvious, there's also stuff that's happening behind the scenes like passive biometrics and AI, et cetera, that are also there to protect them. So we've many tools. Mm -hmm. It's just the right balance between friction and protection, visible protection. Yeah, and for the people who touch about putting in a code, they're also the ones who probably shout the loudest if something goes wrong with their details. And that leads me to another personal question. You know, I said at the top, you've got the best job. You sound like you've got the best job. But you're kind of the unsung hero and your teams are kind of the unsung hero because nobody really fully ever gets to see the work you guys do. We get to experience it, but nobody goes, oh yeah, that was Mick who sits on the third floor who did that because we don't need to know that because it all just happens so seamlessly. Is that a point of frustration or are you happy when no one's looking for you because it means it's all working? <laughs> I mean, as MasterCard, um, certainly we are happy um, we, we are happy when we are behind the scenes and things are just working. That's a promise from us, right? We promise that our network is there. So that's something that I think we're happy with when it just works seamlessly. For me and for my teams, I mean, we do try to spend a lot of time out there. You, you opened up with a question around kind of MasterCard and, and what it is, and, and I talked about how people misunderstand what we are. So, so we are visible, my teams and I are visible because we spend a lot of time talking to people out in the market, to our customers, to our partners, to you know news and, and other uh, media outlets and other stakeholders to kind of 
educate them a little bit on just how broad MasterCard is. Mm -hmm. Why? It's not so that we feel good about ourselves. It's so that partners out there that aren't necessarily working with us today know that they can reach out to us for products and services and advice on some of the challenges that that they are kind of grappling with. Mm-hmm. From an Ireland perspective, I think we're really on the radar for, for MasterCard globally. We have somewhere between 13 and 1400 people on the site here. We're, we'll get up to about 2200. So we've got another 800 to go. Mm-hmm. And you've seen the other building right across the road that we haven't populated yet, but is ours. So we will grow into that. And at that point in time, MasterCard itself is about two thousand, about uh, sorry, thirty thousand people. So when you're a you know circa two thousand person organization in a thirty thousand person company, you're very much on the radar. So I think within MasterCard, we're very well um, appreciated, very well understood, and Ireland is very certainly on the uh, on the radar. My last question, very briefly, is. The metaverse or whatever it's going to be called is coming down the tracks. Are you guys already working on what payments look like in whatever that will be? Yes, we are. You're right. I mean, I, I, I am bullish about the metaverse. The strap line I use is the metaverse is coming, but not soon. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the reason that I, I, I say that is there was a little bit of a hype cycle around the metaverse. And offline, I can tell you some very funny stories around that. Um, but the... The technology isn't there, whether that's the hardware, the, you know, the, the sets and the visors that we wear, whether it's the computing power or whether it's the environments in which the metaverse will, will exist, or even the, the connectivity, because it would require 6G, not 5G, to step into some of these metaverse worlds is about six years away. So the metaverse is coming, but not soon. Now, we'll see it sooner in gaming and a few places like that, but already we're in the metaverse in MasterCard. We've been bringing some of our digital assets, our artists, our musicians, um, some of the content creators. We've stepped into Decentraland, Roboblox. Um, we've built um, banks with some of the banks that want to test out the, the kind of metaverse. We've built branches in there for them. For them. We've built um, uh, online retail stores. We've conducted commerce in the metaverse. Why? Because we do think it's coming and we try to lean into these technologies so that we help them arrive in the right way. That was Ken Moore, the Chief Innovation Officer at MasterCard. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we're going to ask if facial recognition within Garda body cams is a good idea or a bad idea. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. If you want to get in touch, you can do so at any stage. You can email techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. Now, a few weeks ago, I was sitting down with the paper and I was reading an article in the Irish Times that had a headline that uh, jumped out and stayed with me. It said, facial recognition technology will turn Gardaí into roaming surveillance units. There's obviously been a lot of talk about technology and Agarda Shikana, how and when it will work, if it will work, if it will be beneficial. Uh, but this piece, as I said, it really did stay with me and it was co-authored by Kira Brackenroach, who is an assistant professor in the School of Law and Criminology at Maynooth. And she joins me now. Uh, Kira, I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thanks for your time. Before we get into the nitty gritty of this, can you just tell me a little bit about your own interest and study when it comes to crime and technology? Yeah, I mean, I think when we think of a technology and what a technology is, I mean, that varies greatly. You know, I think today when people think of technology, it's primarily kind of limited to, you know, machines and 
you know, machine-like devices. Um, but when we think of policing and technology or crime and technology, the car would have been a technology that revolutionized and changed how policing operated. Even the horse, um, when, you know, police were on foot patrol and phones were set up at set locations for them to call in for backup in response to crime, those, you know, indeed were um, paradigm shifting technologies in the world of policing. So, you know, it's not something entirely new now when we look at surveillance technologies. Mm -hmm. And certainly on the other side, you know, criminals avail of technology to commit crime all the time, too. Um, but this, you know, it's not anything new. It's just it's happening in a, a slightly new form today. Uh, so my interest really is, I guess, similar to your own. So situating myself kind of in the area of surveillance studies, which is quite interdisciplinary, I'm really interested about how and why surveillance technologies are used and what the implications of that use is. And specifically, my work does look at the use of these different technologies by policing services. Yeah, I uh, went to visit the West Midlands Police in the UK a few years ago. I was doing a report on the technology that they use. And one of the officers told me that uh, what's happened in recent years is that when a police officer goes out to respond to, you know, if it's a public disorder or whatever it is, by the time they're out of the car you know, members of the public have their phones out recording them. And I, I was interested because he was saying that, you know, it's holding them to a higher standard. Obviously, they are working the way they're working regardless, but they are very aware of it being filmed. Has there been much research into how police behave when the public is recording? Yeah, I mean, that's not something that I've, you know, focused on in particular um, with my research projects, but it's something that comes up when I am interviewing police about their use of the different technologies. So initially, um, at least in the Canadian context, when body-worn cameras were first coming out, there was a fair bit of reluctance on the part of police officers. Um, and then it started to become much more accepted. And when I was doing interviews with police in Canada just a couple of years ago, um, and certainly even in some conversations with guards here in Ireland, they say, well, when we attend a scene, we are being recorded all the time. So why shouldn't we be afforded with the same technology, you know? Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of the police that I've spoken to seem to welcome being recorded. So, I mean, maybe they... I don't know, I, there could be an element of concern or intimidation or if it's asymmetrical, you know, if they're being recorded, but they're not wearing body worn cameras. But certainly they would say things like, well, you know, we're doing something in a public place. If somebody's recording us, um, then we just have evidence that what we're doing is correct and right, you know. Mm -hmm. um, this is a common kind of trope, though, in when we talk about surveillance generally, you know, thinking about a picture being worth a thousand words, but we know that an image doesn't doesn't tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I suppose this leads us on to the topic of not just body cams, but the use of facial recognition technology within 
those body cams. And as we've spoken about before here on News Talk, there are benefits to facial recognition technology, but there's also huge issues with it. Um, you know, there's biases in the data. Um, it, it finds reading the faces of anyone who's not a white male quite difficult. Uh, but I just want you to, if you don't mind, talk us through some of the key concerns that you have when it comes to Angarda Shiakana using facial recognition technology. Yeah, most definitely. So, I mean, first of all, I'd like to kind of note the fact that Ireland is quite remarkable internationally in the level of trust that the public have in the guards. Um, And I think that's something, you know, really important for us to think about when we have this positive, generally positive working relationship between the public and the guards. And then, you know, that just leads me to question why we would want to bring in perhaps unnecessary and disproportionate levels of technology and surveillance. So some of the, you know, broader kind of questions that we ask in the piece are just around that idea of necessity and proportionality. So is it really necessary to be using these technologies? So when we've spoken to Angarda Shiakana and the Department of Justice, it wasn't clear to us, you know, um, the case numbers that they would be applying this technology to. Um, Initially, when we started having the conversations, it seemed like it would just be um, applied, sorry, retroactively. So to a, a specific case. Um, and they would be running it against existing footage. More recently, of course, um, in the news, we saw comments from Drew Harris, the head of Angarda Shiakana, saying that they wanted to attach essentially live facial recognition technology to the body-worn cameras in order for them to work, you know, appropriately, sufficiently, and so forth. And that's even more concerning. And in fact, Speaking even further to Simon Harris's comments in the past few days, um, saying that, you know, it really is necessary to have live facial recognition attached to body-worn cameras. Um, And, you know, yes, privacy is a concern, but the positives outweigh the negatives. The AI Act is coming in at an EU-wide level, and it looks like they're going to ban this type of live remote biometric identification. So facial recognition technology is a form of remote biometric identification. When it's running live, when it's running en masse, you know, it makes it easy or possible to differentiate, to target, and to experiment on, you know, the public at large. So it's no longer just limited to a particular case. Um, we're no longer looking at an instance where um, somebody is, you know, uh, has reasonable suspicion of somebody doing something wrong, but it becomes public sweeping. So I think that's a major concern for us. So it's the broad scale of it, looking at this form of mass surveillance of the population when it's not limited to reasonable suspicion by the guards. Um, It can really sweep um, large kind of numbers of individuals and take personal data. So your facial recognition pattern is a form of personally identifiable information. And if that is collected 
and correlated with other databases, it has ongoing repercussions. Mm -hmm. Another question that we kind of ask as well is just, you know, with a technology, um, they're said to be innovative and efficient, but the data isn't really there, you know? So like you've said yourself, Jess, the, the tech itself is biased, right? So because of the data sets that the technology is developing on, it's not always working as it should. Um, so Bulawini and Jebru in 2018 did a study um, on the failure of facial recognition to recognize kind of dark skinned faces. And what they found was these, you know, softwares weren't recognizing dark skinned faces. And that's in part because the databases were made up of upwards of 79% and 85% light skinned faces. So the databases then that these technologies are using and based on are biased. And then that impacts the outcomes when it's applied to the public at large. Yeah, and I think that is such an important point there because, you know, the the proportionality, but then also the unbiased approach to the data. You know, if, if we don't have that, then it's sort of game over. I want to play devil's advocate for a second, though. And uh, anytime I've had these conversations with people, They'll say things like, well, sure, if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to worry about. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's that's a common thing that, you know, you would hear. And in fact, my uncle said that to me after reading the article last week. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> he said, I'm not worried. I don't have anything to hide. And I remember I was in um, a talk uh, where Dr. David Lyon is sort surveillance studies scholar in Canada was interviewing Edward Snowden and Edward Snowden said in response to an audience question that you know people saying I don't care I don't have anything to hide is like saying I don't care about freedom of speech because I don't have anything to say Mm -hmm. and really you know what he's getting at there is that it's not about the fact that you don't want to say something or you don't have anything to hide but On the one hand, um, we need as a society to protect and stand up for our democratic rights and freedoms. And so when privacy is impinged, when there are no safeguards on it, it becomes a slippery slope, right? Things like the chilling effect. So if people know that um, cameras are going to be recording protests or facial recognition technology might be run against footage, they might not assemble and protest. It's our democratic right to protest, you know? So that's one aspect of it. And on the other hand, too, I think it's it's the fact that this, you, you might not think you have anything to hide, but you don't know what the profile is of the day. So they might be looking for something and something might be flagged on your profile that does indeed make you suspect. So by virtue of protecting kind of everybody's democratic rights and liberties, um, we're limiting kind of those impingements on individuals. When it's come to facial recognition technology, there's been very limited discussion and consultation on it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what the impact might be for community guard relations is unclear. Um, what the impact might be in terms of actual cases that could be solved or addressed with the retrospective versus live technology is unclear because the conversations haven't been happening. So that's another thing that we pointed to um, 
in our in our article in the in the times was that it's 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 been pushed through without sufficient discussion and because of the implications of something like facial recognition technology it deserves a longer discussion of its own with appropriate study Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something that, you know, and a number of guards that I've spoken to as well have echoed this and expressed concern with the technologies. I mean, it's not like it's one side versus the other. There are a lot of different feelings and positions on the introduction of this technology, and there hasn't been enough space for that conversation. So to push it through as an amendment to the bill um, without really adequately getting into the details of it is really quite concerning. Yeah, and the reason I wanted to have you on is because this isn't a black and white area, right? And I think if you if you paint an evocative or an emotive uh, scenario, so say if somebody steals your mother's handbag, wouldn't you want facial recognition technology and every other thing that the Guardi have at their disposal being used to find that person? Of course you would. But just like everything else when it comes to technology and the law, it, as I said, it's not black and white and so much of the action happens in the grey area. Um, I When I was with the West Midlands Police, who I mentioned a minute ago, they said that there's like a delay on their cameras. So they'll wear their body cams and if there is an altercation, they can punch their own chest and that activates the camera and it'll capture, I think it's like eight seconds before they hit the capture and so on. So there are ways to find compromise and intelligence solutions rather than capturing data on an ongoing basis. But I don't know if I'm more concerned about the use of facial recognition at any time rather than the use of body com- uh, body, body cams being used all the time if that makes sense yeah and I I mean I think at this point um you know body cameras have become widely accepted internationally and like you said there are some safeguards that are introduced to appropriate use around them Mm -hmm. but when it becomes attached to facial recognition technology I mean it that is not just another kind of disparate technology that, you know, I think the minister has said or the interim minister, Simon Harris, has said that it's another tool in the toolbox. We want to make sure that the guards have everything they need at their disposal. But I mean, again, I would question the need with facial recognition software and technology. We're not just talking about it being applied to body worn cameras. We're then talking about it being applied to CCTV footage. Who owns that CCTV footage? Is it the public footage? Is it also private footage? It could be then also applied to um, drone footage as well. So it starts to link up all of these systems. So any technology that's kind of collecting imagery data could be fed through these systems. So it really, it feeds into that question of mass surveillance. You know, what are the what are the databases that the guards would be using to reference against. Again, a lot of these questions we've asked and the answers were unclear. There are only a few companies internationally at the moment who are kind of coming a long way with facial recognition technology, one of them being Clearview AI, Mm -hmm. which um, was just kind of shut down by the Office of the Privacy Commissioner in Canada 
um, for work they had done trialing their systems without appropriate protocols um, with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So, you know, who would we be procuring the technology from? What databases do they use? Would they be referencing against social media footage, for example? Like you said earlier, Jess, when we do any transaction on a debit or credit card, on Revolut, whatever it might be, might be, we become traceable, right? That is surveillance data. If that can somehow be interlinked with existing footage. So, you know, it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. And that's why that question of necessity and proportionality is so important. I mean, I, I would generally be critical of a lot of these surveillance technologies, but I also see the benefits, right? And the way that we can benefit from the positive aspects of the technology is by having appropriate protocols and safeguards in place. And what that means is that we need to have the conversations and not just rush to adopt and start using a technology because that's where the problems happen. Yeah, look, it's been a fascinating conversation and I hope that there are more conversations like this because, as I mentioned there, it's not a black and a white issue, but it's also one of those instances where it's very difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. So uh, the more of these conversations we have right now, the better. Uh, Kira Brackenroach, Assistant Professor in the School of Law and Criminology at Maynooth University. Thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thank you, Jess. And that's it from me this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday's News Talk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.